Hey, this is Mark. We're broadcasting all week from the Vive event in Miami Beach. Vive is a new tech event focused on the business of health systems, and they've gathered a range of top stakeholders to address key issues in digital health, from interoperability to investing and from the convergence of health data to how COVID has advanced consumerism in healthcare. And we're going to be bringing you interviews with a number of them. This week on the show, it's the top thought leaders shaping tech-enabled healthcare interspersed with insights from Vive. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. My guest is Dr. Vish Anantraman, CTO at Mayo Clinic, and we're going to be speaking about how big academic medical centers uh, like Mayo are leveraging AI and ML to harness health data. Uh, That's been a goal, of course, of digital health companies for years, but it's led to some very high-profile stumbles, the likes of IBM's Watson Health. Vish will also talk about why he thinks this is a good time to do AI in healthcare. Uh, We'll also get his take on the biggest tech leaps made by the healthcare system during the pandemic. But first, some housekeeping items. Recruiting is now open for the next installment of Trend Talks, MMM's invitation-only client-side roundtable. Network with peers, engage in lively discussion, and enjoy other perks of participation. The next Trend Talks is coming up March 23rd. If you're interested in joining, feel free to email me at mark.iskowitz at haymarketmedia.com. And also returning to the event slate for the third year is MMM's 40 Under 40 program, which celebrates the wealth of accomplished young talent working in and around medical marketing. The live event is coming up March 24th. For ticket information, visit mmm40under40.com. And now back to our show. Vish, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Mark. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. It's a privilege. Uh, Okay, let's just get into it here. So uh, the logistical snafu, uh, if you will, with AI and ML to harness all this data is is, is something I just want to touch on with you. Uh, It's tripped up some other big academic medical centers like MD Anderson uh, Cancer Center, for instance, which had been working with IBM's Watson Health to develop a tool for cancer doctors that would mine patient health records and thousands of pages of research from the peer-reviewed medical literature for treatment advice, but it hit walls including accuracy and the complexity of combining data from EHRs and billing claims with published research to provide a cohesive product. How is healthcare learning from those past stumbles as it seeks to realize the vision of AI and ML? Yeah, thank you, Mark. I think uh, this is really a very interesting time uh, from from an AI and machine learning perspective and uh, in, in healthcare. There's a number of other, number of things that I think are converging, which makes it a lot different from even four or five years ago, um, let alone, I mean, we've been talking about AI and ML for 30, 40 years. You know, in, in fact, healthcare was one of the first industries to even start thinking about something, um, I mean, AI in, in production uh, state. The biggest problems of the years has been multifold. One is the lack of access to true multimodal data. And I'll get to what, what multimodal data is. The second is the, the lack of uh, systems to or, or a compute technology to be able to process large amounts of data continuously. Um, and the third is the on, the on the applied side. How do you take this insight and make it accessible in a real workflow? Uh, you know, there have been too many models and too many e- efforts which show a very interesting proof of concept but has not necessarily been able to scale beyond the initial use cases or where they were, frankly, quite successful in those use cases. So 
So I'll get to each of these and why now maybe a, a better uh, state we're in. So we look at the data. Uh, you know, obviously, we have really increased the amount of data accessible through, uh, through the EMRs, through uh, digital systems like DICOM imaging and, uh, uh, and, other, uh, and genomic data. Uh, but a lot of that data is now much more liquid and than it was a couple of years ago. And, and I think in no short, uh, no um, small uh, regard, is, uh, the reasons for this is the ability for us to move some of this data more easily to highly elastic uh, locations like the cloud. And uh, so if you combine those two, uh, so, so that's on the data side. So we, I, I do believe that we are in a state where there's enough data and the data is, is uh, adequately liquid. The second aspect is, is the massive compute capabilities that, uh, that the cloud has uh, enabled us to do. Um, and there, there's, uh, I mean, there's no uh, denial that with the technology that the, uh, that's available for things like you know, advertising, for instance, which is very, uh, requires high degree of processing at a fraction of a cost. And, and I think the cost is equally important. You always had a lot of computing if you were willing to go to, let's say, a supercomputing center in the University of Illinois and be able to do massive uh, uh, jobs there. But not every organization had the uh, means to do that. And, uh, and they were never, you could never do this in, in a timely way and, in a, and a cost-effective way. I think both those parameters with the ability to do more uh, on-demand computing. You don't have to set up these massive clusters and now you can start to do these uh, AI machine learnings in, in literally a few weeks rather than months or years it would take to build computing enclaves, secure computing enclaves. And I mean, even if they were available, they were never HIPAA compliant. They were never, you know, they, they, they were treated, catering to the needs of startups and, and smaller companies that are not in the healthcare space. But I think big tech, bringing that technology available whether it's Amazon or Google or Microsoft, I think that's the second dimension that's changed. The third is, I think, still evolving. And I, I think we'll, the next couple of years, we'll see if uh, the promise of interoperability truly allows us to bring AI to workflows for clinicians. And uh, I'm particularly excited about, uh, about uh, standards like uh, Smart on Fire, for instance, where you can now, st or um, where, where you can actually start to bring those insights that may be in a separate computing environment from the EMR in real time where decisions can be made, rather than just retrospective analytic types of things, which has been what we've been doing a lot, but the, the hard part has been to bring AI to real time workflows. So, and I, I, I think if you combine the promise of fire, and we've seen that, that it's truly, uh, the industry has truly embraced that. Unlike uh, other standards in the past, where you know you had adoption but high degree of variability in the adoption, Fire brings a certain amount of semantic normalization, a certain amount of true interoperability, which I think can change the way we do uh, AI in the future. And that is a standard for interoperability. That is correct. So, so Smart on Fire is is a layer on top of uh, Fire, which is a semantic. Uh, um, data structure, and Smart on Fire provides the authentication methods and the application launch methods from each of these EMRs, uh, which means anybody could technically build an app uh, and 
embed that right in the EMR workflow. And that is, that's a big change. And many of the big vendors that I have worked with are truly supporting this. It was nascent two, three years ago, but they're truly supporting it now, which means you can easily start to embed small applets within the bigger EMR and because most clinicians don't want to leave the primary EMR. And that's the reality. Hasn't, uh, you know, not, not to single out any vendors, but Athena Health has, has offered that for years, right? That sort of API that you could build an app on top of their system. Are you saying that now the larger vendors are becoming more open to it? Is that, was that what's changed? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so, I'll, and I'll get to the second aspect of, uh, one of the aspects of data that I'm very, very um, excited about, which is the multimodal access data. And this is some of the things that we're doing really in, um, in uh, Mayo as well. You know, if you look at the data in the EMR, that's one dimension of the data, and uh, often is not adequate enough. Um, so what, what these EMR vendors did, while they may have offered smart uh, fire integration, you were restricted to the amount of data that was available for that patient at that point in time in the EMR. Um, with the ability for us to bring this data out into, say, a cloud platform, you can now start to mesh this data with other sources. So for example, at Mayo Clinic, uh, we have, we estimate about 30 petabytes of data that is what we have uh, between our clinical systems, our unstructured uh, data, as well as imaging systems. We have nearly five petabytes of, of radiology data, and another about terabyte of EKG signal data, and um, another 10 to 15 petabytes of pathology images. And now you can, first of all, computing that amount of data is, is hard. So, so that was the second part of the problem. But now you combine the machine learning insights from structured and unstructured and imaging data to deliver those back into the EMR, you could never do it in the technology that existed in four or five years ago. So they always relied on the smart on fire apps that on the fire servers that existed in the EMR. And so it was a check the box was is truly embracing the ability to have a marketplace and an API where you can launch applications consistently. Mm -hmm. So now the average clinician is seeing that in his or her EMR to a greater extent uh, than, than previously. I think um, if you, I mean, and I can speak to um, the EMR that we use at Mayo Clinic, Epic Orchard, for example, uh, which is their app store. And, and you do see quite uh, a variety, nearly 300 plus applications available. Uh, it's, there's still some significant problems to solve. Because each of these applications still depend on the way you have configured your EMR. And, and, and what, is, what has happened again in the industry with standardization, FHIR was a draft standard until, until a year ago. Um, and now it's a, until a two, maybe two years ago, now it is a, a normative standard, which means it's a, it's a standard, it doesn't change, it doesn't change that often. So with release four, you've reached a maturity in the standards as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're saying your observation is now is a good time to be doing AI, and that's because these types of standards are proliferating more, they're becoming more commonplace, um, and that's leading to some concrete strides really, vis-a-vis uh, -vis clinical data and, and making use of it in, in a clinical setting. Okay. Um, I just had a whole conversation this morning uh, with uh, the CTO of Anthem, actually, uh, your, your counterpart there, and um, about the convergence of claims with, with clinical data. And, uh, you know, assuming it was more difficult than, say, IBM made it out to be, why is bringing those two silos together 
uh, such a complex challenge? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of uh, reasons. But I can, you know, one of the one of the primary ob- problems has been that billing systems and uh, claim systems have been very different from from the EHR systems. So that's been one of the problems. The second one, I would say, is a lot of our EMRs have been designed uh, to meet the needs of billing, and and so, um, you know, I hear from clinicians every day. The problem list that I see in the EMR is not truly representative of the patient's problem list. We need better templates. We need better templates is not the solution. <laughs> Can and, you design those for us? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and so when you look at uh, a problem, something like basic as a problem list, a billing-centered problem list is very different from reconciling from what is the patient really here for. And what do you really want to see as comorbid conditions, and if you're, whether you're doing machine learning or even trying to treat the patient? And, and we've designed too many of our systems focused on optimizing the billing aspects. Because at the end of the day, with hospital systems running really, really small margins, you can't afford to do that. And I'm hoping that AI will actually help us. Uh, this is one of the initiatives you're doing. How do you clean up the problem list? So that your billing problem list and your clinical problem list don't have to be that different, and and that's really at the end of the day what billers want. But we have made our rules and regulations so complex that the incentives are not aligned. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the clinical side, you know we have EHRs, details on the medical care of hundreds of millions of patients are piling up in in electronic health records in clinics and hospitals around the world, comprising a growing treasure trove of real-world data on the daily practice of medicine, patient diagnoses, treatments, and outcomes. And companies and academic institutions are beginning to tap into this. And some look at that as as a giant data silo. Uh, What's the future of unlocking the clinical data in EMRs to create a more cohesive interconnected ecosystem for the patient and a valuable asset to health delivery systems? So uh, I, I think um, one, if there's one thing that uh, AI machine learning has done and has the potential to do rather, is not yet done, but has a really good potential is, historically we've depended a lot on structured data. And, and so extracting structured data and normalizing structured data was a very difficult long drawn process and and so um, you look at the on the other hand you look at this the the world wide web the internet is all unstructured and we've learned and the and technology and AI has figured out how you can still get answers to questions that you have without necessarily having everything as structured and I do think that can help unlock uh, what can become much more accessible data even if you didn't have every single piece of data available uh, from the EMR for any for secondary uses. We call it the secondary use of data. So you can just take a note, for example, uh, which every hospital, every doctor has to write because they need they had those wonderful templates that we created for them, uh, and just take those notes and and within for a, for a fraction of a cost that it would be, extract all the useful information and make it structured for any any number of downstream purposes very very quickly. All the three big vendors now have APIs for NLP processing. And, and so I think technology of that sort, if you find the right uses of uh, where you, you don't have to always think about AI machine learning as is, you know, predicting a specific 
you know, disease condition or, or a morbidity, uh, a morbid, mortality morbidity scoring for patients, but also for really unlocking data itself. In fact, yeah, on, the, on the flip side, how do you take this information, the EMR, and make it much more useful for the clinician by using things like auto-summarization and, and tools of that sort? So I think AI can play a different role in, in helping democratize that data as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, another conversation I had this morning um, was about uh, how the, uh, the government just uh, passed regulations with regard to information blocking just this past year. And uh, there's been about 300 uh, complaints that have already cropped up amongst um, IT developers, health systems, about um, data that remains locked and, and, or blocked, if you will. And I was wondering how the Mayo Clinic, what, what's your position on that, how you're finding the adjustment process to, to that, that new regulation? Yeah, I mean, I think Mayo Clinic has always had the history of, of um, uh, putting the needs of the patient first. Uh, that's really what drives all of our interactions with our patients. And so um, we were one of the first, if not, I think we were the first major health system to actually have a patient app uh, that was on the iOS platform back in 2011, even before any of the vendors had even thought about an application. And and, and we believe in, um, and, and, and our mode of care is such that you, know, you, you literally walk into the clinic and you get, um, you, you, we are a very tertiary care center and we look to, most of our patients have complex problems and they come to Mayo after they've exhausted other options. And so they usually have a, a, a lot of informa- data available, but uh, the way we, we uh, do care is that when the patient comes into the clinic, they all have to download the app before they come to the clinic. And as in they spend the next two, three days in the clinic, they receive their results almost every half hour. And that helps us drive where they should be going and what, what doctors they should be seeing. So we think information, giving patient access to those inf- that information has been part of our DNA from, from day one. So I we don't, th- and I, I think we work very closely with our EMR. There's some regulatory things that we have to take care of, particularly in, in the case of sensitive tests and so on, but we don't see that as anything that we worry about at all. Sure, okay. Um, it seems as though providers are leveraging this data to work together with other stakeholders like, like payers. Would you talk a little bit about what that looks like at the Mayo Clinic? So, um, well, I mean, I think there's, there is the two aspects. One is uh, data for the sake of, for the, for the purposes, of, are you talking about the identified data or are you talking about machine learning and those kinds of uh, 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 aspects? Uh, more like uh, the de-identified claims yeah. data. So, so Mayo Clinic has a very uh, specific policy around what we call as uh, limited data under the glass. Um, and um, uh, we formed the Mayo Clinic platform, which is headed by uh, John Halamka, um, is the president of our Mayo Clinic platform about two years ago. With, with a very clear vision. Mayo has been in the, in the forefront of diagnostics and, and cures for the last century and a half. Um, we believe that the next 10 years is going to see cures coming from very different places. Cures coming from data. Cures coming from AI machine learning algorithms. And so we made a, sign- a very conscious effort in investing in an infrastructure that will keep our data secure, highly private, and under what we call under the glass. So we uh, we worked with, um, uh, so the Mayo Clinic platform uh, is essentially a, a platform that allows producers and consumers to be able to co- collaborate uh, 
because we believe that next generation of cure is not going to come just from Mayo Clinic. It's going to be coming with collaborators coming from different aspects and leveraging a data-rich platform. And so we, we spent the last two years building this platform, which, allow, which has about 10 million patients or so de-identified with another five petabytes of, uh, of imaging that's going to be available in a de-identified way for collaborators who are willing to work with our rules, which is that the data never leaves Mayo's control. The data is completely de-identified and certified to be de-identified, and only insights from the, from the um, data are allowed to be used by the customer. So we, we welcome different kinds of participants from payers to, uh, to AI algorithm companies to, um, to device manufacturing companies who are interested in having a multiplicative effect, uh, uh, um, effect on using this data to find cures, to find uh, new discoveries. Okay. How are cloud vendors shaking up healthcare IT? I think I, I, think I touched on this a little bit. Um, the, um, it's, it's, you know, there's been, first of all, very, very uh, satisfying to see how these, all the vendors have embraced standards. It's in their interest. There's no doubt it's in their interest. But um, all the three major cloud vendors in the market, um, you know, Oracle included, but they have a very different play now as a, as a cloud vendor. But if you think... Uh, look at Cerner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you think about Google, Microsoft, and, and Amazon, all three of them have really spent time in, in, uh, in leveraging Fire as an open standard. So that's number one. Number two, what they have, all of them have, have got their own strategies to do this, our own technology to do this, but essentially they all want to make secondary data available from the EMR, uh, become the secondary source of uh, data for secondary set of analysis, which means you can almost have a digital twin of your EMR now in the cloud. Uh, and that opens up a whole bunch of possibilities. And that's really what we've been doing at, at Mayo Clinic. We've really built a real-time digital twin of the patient, uh, which allows us to keep our transactional system doing what they have to do to keep the EMR running without impacting any of that, but have the digital twin do your machine learning do your innovative digital initiatives uh, and, and all sorts of other interesting capabilities. And that was never possible. Uh, it was possible, but very, very hard on an on-premise system, which is the, the initial investments were huge. Here you could be serverless and, and, and start to scale very, very quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that uh, reminded me of Microsoft's $16 billion acquisition of Nuance recently as, as this event opened up. Uh, and Nuance has a very big footprint, as I understand it, in digital imaging um, and Im digital imaging, uh, um, you know, using AI to facilitate that process. Quick take on that from your perspective. Well, I mean, I think uh, uh, I, I don't know Microsoft's strategy, but, you know, one could speculate a little bit here. <laughs> and uh, but, but, you know, the Nuance acquisition is a lot about uh, Microsoft's signaling to the market that they're serious about healthcare. Um, Nuance has a kind of like Oracle and Cerner. Exactly. I mean, I think that is uh, Nuance has a huge footprint in being the de facto transcription service for most uh, health, many many health systems, particularly in radiology, as they say. They don't do much AI imaging, AR, or anything of that sort. It's purely transcription, uh, billing, and 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 uh, um, that 
domain. Now, they have made some very interesting forays into things like digital assistance and, um, and, and true voice-based uh, understanding of the EMR. Um, so I, I presume that you know, a lot of this compute is going to come from a scalable technologies in the cloud, and I think Microsoft is uh, really signaled with that. Okay, okay, great. Um, one more question, I'll let you go. Sure. What will you take back from the Vive event to the office back at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I mean, I think uh, it's, uh, it's clear that uh, there is a, this continues to be, healthcare, healthcare IT continues to be an area which has rich investment from all, all sorts of players. You can, you can go from one end of the uh, for, you know infrastructure players like and to cybersecurity players to digital players to to data players and um, you know ten years ago you would go to a conference in healthcare and it was largely EMR vendors and 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 you know I think it's it's becoming very clear that there is there is a world that I call as the post EMR world we've all spent the last fifteen years building really solid foundation for us to do the next big thing and and i think uh you'll see a lot of them here you'll see a lot of interesting companies that are trying to uh you know integration used to be a big hard difficult word it's slowly starting to become a commodity um i wouldn't say it's a fully commoditized yet but that opens up the ability to innovate much faster and that's what you see here okay great it's been a fascinating talk thanks so much for your time thank you mark you got it That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizi M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>